0: Play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Is your Last Meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell. and each episode, I interview a celebrity about what they would choose to eat for their last meal. Then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, Kevin Allison. Kevin hosts the wildly popular podcast and live show Risk! Exclamation point. Are you supposed to say that out loud? I don't know. It's a storytelling show, quote, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. Unquote. Kevin is a comedy writer and actor. You may remember him from MTV's The State in the 1990s, not the 1890s. <laughs> he was also on shows like Reno 911, Exclamation Point, Flight of the Concords, and Comedy Bang Bang.
1: Actually, it's Comedy Bang, Exclamation Point, Bang, Exclamation Point.
0: And that's why you're here to edit me. Thank you very much. Plus, he co-founded the storytelling school, The Story Studio, in New York City. Later in the show, Kevin and I discuss a shared love of a beverage shunned by most adults.
2: A lot of people vomiting in their mouths right now.
0: (laughs) Screw them! Pardon my French. We will learn the history of the martini with the cocktail evangelist Robert Hess.
3: James Bond's influence was pretty big because suddenly now you see this suave, sophisticated guy going into a bar and ordering martini after martini after martini, usually made with vodka, almost always shaken, not stirred, both of which are the wrong way to have a martini.
0: And in honor of risk, exclamation point, producer Aaron and I discuss the risky foods that I have eaten over the years, horse sashimi, Japanese blowfish, eating live fish. Um, In Vietnam, I had a maggot pancake. Sorry. a maggot pancake.
1: I don't like that phrase.
0: That wasn't very good. They took really
1: a lot. <laughs> really? The maggot <laughs> pancake wasn't any good? So Kevin hosts
0: Risk, which is basically an R or X-rated version of NPR's The Moth. It's a storytelling show where people tell provocative, controversial, hilarious, and messy true life stories. You don't seem like someone who is shocked easily and sounds like one of your more popular episodes is where you talk about going to a gay man's kink camp. Have you heard a story that was too much for you or that you were like, oh, wow, this is really intense or this is something I wouldn't have expected someone to share?
2: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Many times, actually. Um, So, yeah, a friend shared about a time that she uh, had a psychotic breakdown and tried to murder her mother, tried to uh, stab her mother. And it was so intense, but it was so beautiful because in the end, it turned out to be this really kind of transcendent story about how her mother was the person who, through forgiveness and support and love, like helped her get back on her feet and put her life together. I mean, just amazing, just that, you know, the relationship there. Recently, just like two episodes ago, a young woman shared about how she discovered that her father was. I don't know how to I, I in interviews, I don't know how to put this politely. I guess into cannibalism <laughs> <laughs> is the, the best phrase I can come up with. <laughs> It's a horrifying story and really 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 like fascinating and
0: creepy. Yeah, what's the gateway to cannibalism? Is it like you're you're like biting your nails and you're like, "Ooh, kind of go <laughs> take this further." I hope
2: not because I bite my nails like crazy. I don't even want to think about it. I being into like kinky stuff every now and then, I'm like, "Oh, please, please don't let me start being into that." <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: So did you always talk about the kink that you were into, or did that become something that was easier for you to be out loud and out with once you started doing risk?
2: Everyone who knows me well acknowledges that risk is a natural extension of my entire life because... Knowing I was gay was literally at the beginning of consciousness for me. And that that's a curse, actually, for a child to be, you know, whatever, three, four years old and just putting conscious thoughts together for the first time and realizing, oh, I like boys. <laughs> for me, it was literally just boys' butts. I was like, oh, I like boys' butts. But by the time I was five, I knew what the words gay and feminine. And I knew that they not only meant boys who like boys, but that it also meant horrible, awful, lame, something that you should get rid of laughable. You know, so there was just a ton of fear and terror and shame wrapped up in all of that for me. So I grew up thinking, when am I going to come out? How am I going to come out? That's why I became a comedian, really. That's why I developed those class clown tendencies because I was like, look, there's something really weird that people might find hateful and loathsome inside of me. So can I find a way of being weird, but that's very friendly and that everyone would kind of enjoy. It was that winning formula for me.
0: My first memories of storytelling were at slumber parties. Anyway, so I was going to ask you about your slumber party experience, but knowing that you knew you were gay from such a young age, now I'm extra curious, if you did go to slumber parties, how was it for you spending the night with a bunch of boys?
2: Oh my God. What did you... <laughs> what, what Pandora's box are you opening? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I was when I was around, uh, I, I, I guess, 11, 12, 13, you know, right in there. those I guess that's puberty pubescent years. You know, I had a lot of close male friends. And uh, I was very aware that I was gay. So you know what I would do, and and now looking back, I'm like, oh my god, that's kind of predatory. What I would do is I would be like, uh, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we all went streaking? You know, oh my god, so I can see my friend Don's butt. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and there was so there were a lot of shenanigans like that, which led to I would say some very light experimentation. Of touching, and it was so funny because I remember one thing guys used to always say in those cir- circumstances was, Wow, won't this be so cool when we could do it with girls? <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that's when you started as an actor in those moments. You got to practice (laughs) acting. Right, exactly. (laughs) Everything that Kevin does is big and dramatic. You can probably tell by the way that he laughs and the way that he talks. And he seems to jump into everything in his life 100%. But when it comes to the way that he eats, he just can't seem to commit wholeheartedly. What would your last meal be?
2: Oh, you know, what is so, so funny about this question is that it brings up for me these issues of moderation in my life right now. I have lately been spending as much time as I possibly can trying to be vegan. So, gosh, you know, when I think, oh, what would my last meal be? I think a steak.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're such a good vegan.
2: I'm such an extremist. You know, I go through these phases of being so good about eating only almost leaves. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then I'll be like, you know, three weeks of that will go by and I'll be like, oh, my God, I'm going to have a filet mignon. And I think that that's actually not so terrible a thing. I, I think that Eating mostly vegan and then having a cheat day, you know, once or twice a month is actually, I think, probably a fairly healthy way to go about things. I would have steak and then I would have myself some, you know, vodka martinis. <laughs>
0: Do you have any problems with the labeling of vegan, like having to announce that you're vegan? Because I feel like so much is wrapped up in that. Like a lot of people kind of eye roll it or think that you're a certain way, like, oh, you're a hippie, you know, that you're maybe unrelatable. I'm not sure if this is true for you, but do you confidently walk in a room, put your cape around your neck and go, I'm a vegan? Oh,
2: God, no, never. I'm super aware of it. And that's why if I do say it, I'll almost immediately give the caveat that I cheat. You know what I mean? And that's weird, too, like to feel like I have to make it there are some places that i find it almost impossible like when i go home to cincinnati ohio you know it's going to be such an issue with my mom and <laughs> like, like <laughs> my parents are you know they're in their mid-70s they are ohio you know what i mean like like to them the idea of not eating meat is almost like
1: what
2: That like you know like they're almost like hurt and offended that you're you know, challenging, uh, something that's central to their lifestyles. So yeah, I mean, when I go home to Cincinnati, I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to eat whatever they give me. You know, I, 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 I think most people who try to be vegan or are vegan, like feel a lot of dread around like going to a dinner party or whatever and being like, mm, do special work for me, you know? Ah!
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: so yeah. So so I am, a, I am a vegan with plenty, plenty of cheating and plenty of, yeah, well, whatever, not today.
0: <laughs> vegan light. What kind of food does your mom or your parents cook?
2: Oh, my God. It would be, you know, the steaky sort of stuff, meat and potatoes kind of stuff. L- lasagna, we were obsessed with in my family. I, and I still, that, you, that would be, like, I had to stop myself from saying lasagna because that's what I would have answered as a kid, you know, uh, that was every birthday was lasagna. Um, so, yeah, meaty, cheesy, potatoey stuff is just like, you know, that, that kind of real comfort food is so popular in the Midwest. You know, when you go, when I go home, I'm like, oh yeah, everyone is a little bit wider here. And also when, especially if I've, I've been really good lately and I've trimmed down, my mom will be, you know, and and I'll feel like I look like absolutely healthy and like uh, whatever the recommended weight is. That's when my mom will be like, oh my God, you're starving.
0: (laughs) That's when she puts cream of mushroom soup in a baby bottle for you and gives it to you when you go to bed.
2: Exactly. That was another thing. Like, like no one told me that people don't drink like whole milk well into adulthood. <laughs> I had to like learn that several years ago too. I was like, oh, I'm I'm just an Ohio boy who drank milk with everything.
0: <laughs> I still drink milk a lot as an adult, and really, no one does anymore. People look at me like I'm drinking gasoline. I can't even believe how shocked people are that I'm just drinking milk. Yeah, yeah.
2: And then there's the milk and other food combos. Like if I'm feeling really bad, I'll have milk and Doritos. And that people is are like, good.
0: What? Yes. Well, Yeah.
2: There is milk you, you, they use like skim milk I think to make the Doritos themselves. So yeah, there's something very complementary going on there. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I think it's like the intense saltiness that goes well with like a mellow creaminess cuz I really yes. love milk with pizza, especially pepperoni pizza, and That's great. and with Chinese food also, and that's pretty salty also.
2: Uh Uh-huh, that's amazing. Um, Do you, when you're going to have a (laughs) steak... There are a lot of people vomiting in their mouths right now.
0: (laughs) Screw them! For his last meal, perfect angel vegan Kevin Allison wants a rare steak, most likely a filet mignon and a vodka martini. When we come back, we're going to learn all about the history of the martini, perhaps the most iconic and classic cocktail of them all. But before we talk about booze, we have to talk about booze if you're a fan of naturally gorgeous off the beaten path vacation spots with small town charm you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Poulsbo. Or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash meal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Hey, buddies. We're back. And we're going to unlock the secrets of the martini. Seattle's Robert Hess calls himself the Cocktail Evangelist. He has a web series called The Cocktail Spirit, where you can learn to mix up classic cocktails. So let's first talk about the history of the martini. In my mind, it seems to be one of the most classic drinks and something I think a lot of people like to order because it seems classy. Uh, So where did the martini come from?
3: Well, the martini is a drink that evolved back in the 1880s about, can't really pick the exact date who did it or what the exact first recipe was, but sometime in the 1880s. Um, it basically was the, the younger sibling of the Manhattan, which is a drink of a similar style that was probably invented in the 1870s sometime.
0: How is it a sibling? Because one is clear and one is brown, and I find one to be more sweet than the other.
3: Well, to think about the siblings, you need to understand the cocktail itself and the family tree there. The cocktail itself gets to start from probably around 1800. Um, the very first time we see the definition for cocktail in print is in 1806, um, and there they define the cocktail as being spirits of any kind, sugar, water, bitters. Which, if the spirits of any kind was whiskey, you'd recognize that today as what's called an old fashioned. And for you know several decades, if you ordered a cocktail, you would order a gin cocktail made with gin, sugar, water, uh, bitters. There was no other names going on back then. And then sometimes in the like the 1860s or so, other ingredients started coming into the bartender's repertoire, one of those being vermouth. And the bartender started playing around with vermouth and suddenly this new style of cocktail came about that no longer fit the pattern of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. And therefore, if you wanted a cocktail made the old way, you had to ask for a old-fashioned cocktail. And that's where the old fashioned comes from. So the martini in Manhattan kind of, you know, caused the birth of the concept of a quote unquote old fashioned.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So what exactly is a martini?
3: That's a really good question. We mentioned the Manhattan already. And if you were to go back to the original recipes that you saw for the Manhattan back in the late 1800s, it's almost identical to the way they serve them today. The martini, nowhere near the same. So the, the original, some of the original mar, uh, recipes for martini called for gin and vermouth, w- which is normal, and bitters. Now, remember I mentioned that a cocktail originally designed as having spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. Yes. Bitters became the defining ingredient for anything called a cocktail. Clear until prohibition. If it was a cocktail, it absolutely had to have bitters in it. So the martini originally had bitters, what's known as orange bitters. Now, I mentioned gin, vermouth, and bitters. The vermouth in a martini was originally sweet vermouth. If you wanted to use dry vermouth the same amount, you'd ask for a dry martini. And that is simply swipping the vermouth from sweet to dry.
0: You will notice there is no mention of vodka, which is the martini Kevin requested, and a martini that lots of people order regularly. Robert says vodka didn't find its way into the martini glass until about the 1960s. And it wouldn't be right to talk about martinis without sipping on one. So Robert was nice enough to bring the fixings for four different versions of a martini. Uh, He came in the door with this really cool old black doctor's bag uh, and he opened it up and he had all of these little glasses and he had crystal pitchers and the really nice stirring sticks, the crystal stirring sticks, and he had already proportioned and measured out bottles of gin and vermouth.
3: And so what I've set up for you now are four different variations of martini. On your right-hand side is like the original martini made with sweet vermouth. On, and
0: it's the only one that has a brown issue. The other three are clear.
3: Right, so it's got the, the it almost looks like a Manhattan. Mm. And that one I made with uh, gin, sweet vermouth, and a, and a special kind of orange bitters that we actually make ourselves at home. Uh, we kind of DIY our bitters.
0: And then, of course, all of these martinis have a twist.
3: They do have a twist. I can accept a martini with an olive. I like olives as much as the next guy, if, if not better. Uh, but I think that I like the the characteristics that the lemon twist does in a martini rather than the brine of the olives. I'd much rather have the olives sitting on the side so I can snack on them because they make a wonderful snack. Uh, but they don't do that good in the drink itself, I don't think.
0: Yeah, that's how you served it to me. So I have my martini and then I have a little cup here full of olives. Yeah. So you just kind of snack on them as you go. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think they work good for that.
0: Okay, so no olives in the actual drink which is actually my favorite part of a martini. I don't really like martinis, so I like mine dirty so that I can not taste the cocktail at all is basically what you're doing when you pour olive juice in there. As for the twist, which does belong in a classic martini, Robert sliced off long chunks of lemon peel using a small knife, and then he squeezed the peel into the drink, sending a nice mist of citrus oil onto the surface of the cocktail. And all of the martinis he made for me were stirred, not shaken.
3: You don't want to shake a martini, you want to stir a martini. There's a rule of thumb when thinking about cocktails. Some cocktails you want to shake, some cocktails you want to stir. Notice the drinks in front of you, they're clear ingredients, they're all perfectly clear. If I were to shake any one of those martinis and pour it back in the glass, it's gonna look like swamp water. It's gonna have bubbles in it, it's gonna have foam on the top of it that looks ugly, um, and it's not gonna be a very pretty presentation. The drinks you want to shake are the drinks that are cloudy already. Either they got a lemon juice in them, or milk,
0: Okay, so no olives, no shaking, and imagine what people drink martinis out of. You can picture it right now. It's that big V-shaped glass. Robert says you're doing it wrong. Yeah, because these aren't the classic V-shaped martini glass. They look kind of like a small red wine glass
3: to me. Yeah, and this, this would be a glass that actually they would have used for, for cocktails uh, back in the old days. One of the things i like to point out, is, and your, your audience can't see this, is that all the glasses I have here are relatively small they can hold maybe like a four ounce drink and have a little teeny bit of headroom. These drinks have like two ounces of booze in it. Two ounces is what you want to have in a cocktail because anything more than that, and you're just going to go in la-la land in, in, in pretty quick time. Nowadays, if you go into a lot of these glassware stores, you'll see glasses, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10 ounce glasses. And so I think one of the biggest things I can say is when you're buying your glassware for cocktail, and if you're going to do cocktails like martinis and Manhattan's, which are all booze, Get them like five-ounce glasses. Five ounces, is like the perfect size for a really good martini glass.
0: What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Have you eaten brains, eyeballs, frogs, butts? Well, I have eaten a lot of funky stuff. No frogs, butts though. Uh, it sounds kind of dumb to say, but eating weird stuff is kind of my thing. Producer Erin and I will talk risky foods after this break. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. When we were thinking about risk, we started thinking about risky foods because I happen to be somebody who, when I travel abroad, I tried to find the strangest things that I can eat in that country. Yesterday, I decided to make a list of all the things. Uh, by the way, producer Aaron is joining me for this segment. Hello.
1: I will eat almost anything, especially I've been, I, I did some traveling in my early 20s and it's uh, culturally insensitive a lot of times to not eat things yeah. that are given to you. And some of those things are pretty outrageous.
0: Should I just read my list?
1: Yeah, let's see what you got. Give me the the hot take.
0: Okay. This was actually delicious. And if I didn't know what it was, I wouldn't have even thought it was gross. I didn't think it was gross when I found out what it was. But when you tell people that you ate the sperm sack of a cod, Mm -hmm. they don't always react well. So it was very creamy. Uh, It's a delicacy in Japan. I only had it at really nice restaurants. It's called Shirako. I ate a lot of stuff when I was in Japan. I had horse sashimi.
1: Ooh, yeah, I've had horse. You have? I have. I did not care for it.
0: I did have the blowfish that everybody talks about in Japan that's supposed to be really risky.
1: When you when we talked about doing risky foods for the show, that's the first thing I, I thought of was that Fugu. blowfish that, yeah, will yeah. kill you if it's prepared wrong.
0: The thing that is the most controversial is... Live fish. So I was living in Japan. It's up on the Noto Peninsula, and there's a couple places that are known for serving live fish. So you just get a small bowl of water. They scoop them out from the sea outside, and they're really small. They're probably like, how big is that? Like an
1: inch and a half. An
0: inch and a half long, transparent. You can see like their little bones and stuff. And they gave us about a dozen each in a bowl. You have to pick up the fish with chopsticks, and then you dip the live animal into soy sauce and put it in your mouth. I wanted to do this. I arranged this trip. But then when I was sitting at the table, I got super freaked out and I couldn't do it. It took me forever.
1: I don't think I could bite down. I think I just have to like go goldfish at the frat party, just straight down the gullet.
0: Yeah. In Vietnam, I had a maggot pancake.
1: Sorry? I I don't like that phrase.
0: That wasn't very good.
1: Really? A (laughs) lot. Really? The (laughs) Macket pancake wasn't any good.
0: Also, had a bunch of fried mealworms, which were really Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, mealworms are good. Yeah. Um And it's all cultural perception because we like to say, ew, that's gross. Ew, that's gross. It's only gross because you didn't grow up with it. I mean, I've even had people comment about how strange it is in Japan that they eat fish for breakfast. It's like your body doesn't know what food goes in at what time. Nothing is weird unless you make it weird. That's right. It's kind of weird to drink milk and to eat eggs. So if your friend had a baby and said, do you want to drink some of my breast milk? I'd say 99% of people would go, no, that's so gross. But we drink
1: cow's breast milk every right. day and it's from another species. Yeah. I was dry heaving during the placenta episode a couple, a couple were, weeks ago. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm eating unfertilized eggs constantly.
0: Exactly. On that note, I have eaten balut, which um, is really popular in the Philippines. I had it in Vietnam. Um, it is a developing bird embryo. That was also a little rough. Recently here at the radio station I had a tempura tarantula that was delicious. Really? It tasted like soft shell crab. I would say the most graphic thing that I ate besides the balut was in Peru. They call it cooey, but it's guinea pig.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And I ordered it and it came out on the plate whole. And there were mashed potatoes and one of its little paws was in the mashed potatoes. No! So if you lifted it up, there was a tiny little handprint, No, <laughs> but it's not that good. There's not very much meat on it. Is there anything you wouldn't eat?
1: No, I no, I don't think so. And I'm including long pig. Me too. I mean, I would including totally including eat a human,
0: flesh. but It would be such a special circumstance because I wouldn't want somebody murdered for me to eat. Of course. I don't want to eat somebody who's already dead who's diseased.
1: Yeah, no. That's a bad idea.
0: Somebody would have to donate their body to the culinary world who was healthy and robust, and then I'd try a little piece. I
1: think I would, too. And I'm pretty sure the way you're supposed to answer this question is only in a survival situation. Yeah. But that's not me being
0: honest. No. Well, should we make a pack? Whoever dies first gets to eat the other. Rachel, it's on wax. Let's shake on we it. just recorded it.
2: <laughs> a lot of people vomiting in their mouths
0: right now. <laughs> and that was Kevin Allison's last meal. Kevin Allison is the host of the Risk podcast, and he does the show live all over the country. Go to risk com slash tours to find a live Risk show near you. Thanks to my own personal bartender, Robert Hess. You can watch his cocktail tutorial videos at smallscreennetwork.com slash cocktail underscore spirit. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me. Original music by Prom Queen. And if you like the podcast, we would love it if you subscribe and even better leave a review. It helps other people find us. Speaking of finding people, you can find me on Twitter at I'm Rachel Bell. It's B-E-L-L-E. And on Facebook, you can do the old facebook.com slash hello, Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell. And until next time, this is your last meal.